Welcome to the Principles of Performance podcast, where we discuss how to optimize your health, fitness, and performance. Drawing on decades of experience of working as coaches, consultants, and trainers to top performers, athletes, and teens from professional sports to top universities to the U.S. military, Eric Degatti and Mike Perry discuss topics and strategies of how to perform at your highest level and be your very best. Join us and our friends and colleagues who are leaders in the fitness and performance industry as we investigate and challenge the most popular training, nutrition, lifestyle, and recovery protocols. go here we are at the principles of performance podcast i am your host eric degatti along with my friend and co-host mike perry mike welcome to episode number 78 uh we've got an awesome guest for today um this is going to be a good one i'm i'm, I'm excited to learn because this is a, a topic that I'm, I'm i'm really sort of just excited about and uh sort of infatuated with and i'm excited about today's guest but i don't want to give it away so why don't you go ahead and finish up his intro and then we'll get going yeah, we have an interesting guy. We have uh, Nick Lamb, uh, also known sometimes as the sleep coach, and he's a longtime coach in the health and fitness industry. So we're going to go in a couple different places, but with a lot of emphasis on sleep. Uh, he spent the majority of his one-on-one -on -one coaching working in the rehab setting, uh, working with PTs and medical providers, and that's kind of where he kind of developed this love for sleep. And uh, through that, he instituted sleep coaching as a separate service um, in the integrated clinic he was working with. And then from there, he developed uh, the online sleep coach brand. And from there, he started working with teams in the NFL, MLB, NBA, UFC, uh, US Olympic team. Um, and then beyond that, he also developed his sleep and recovery coaching course, uh, as well as his sleep education, um, which is providing education to professionals in sleep coaching. And then on top of all that, he has an education company called Coach. Uh, where he's empowering coaches and he's doing a whole bunch of stuff in the health and fitness industry, uh, running big events like the Raise the Bar Conference. So we're going to go in a bunch of different places here. Uh, so I hope you're ready to go. Nick, welcome to the show. Absolutely. Let's do it. Appreciate you guys having me on. Awesome. So so let's dive in with the sleep stuff. And I'm going to self-admittedly say this is something that I preach, but don't live really well. So um, in, in our industry, it's not easy always because of the hours that we have. But Let's just talk about surface level. Most people acknowledge that sleep is important, but just like how big of a problem is it and for how many people? Yeah. So in terms of how, of how widespread of a problem it is, I actually think it's a, a larger problem than we sometimes even give it credit for being. And, and the reason for that is if you were to, if you were to Google how many people struggle with sleep right now, you're going to get vastly different statistics, vastly different numbers. You'll get anything from, just under half the population to half the population to even some studies. There's one I always reference from consumer reports. They pulled a few thousand middle-aged adults, asked them about their sleeping habits, and 80% of them admitted to struggling with sleep at least one night a week. And so the reason we see such a wide variety is because we, in the industry and outside the industry, we don't have a really clearly defined criteria for what it means to struggle with sleep. Are we just talking about the inability to fall asleep, stay asleep, get fully restful sleep? Is it the effects that people feel as a result of not getting adequate sleep and adequate quality of sleep? And so the more we lighten and loosen the criteria, the more that we see people are struggling in multiple facets. And for me in, and us in the industry, I've always been fascinated with just how much it connects to what we're trying to do with people on a day in and day out basis, where we tend to focus so much on our programming and the exercises that we select and even things from a nutritional perspective. But ultimately, if you think about the foundation of accomplishing any health performance, fitness related goal, recovery and adaptation is necessary. We provide a stimulus. We provide the body an opportunity to adapt to some type of stressor that forces the body to change, hopefully for the better. What I think, as simple as it is, what we sometimes lose sight of is the fact that without adequate sleep and adequate quality of sleep that allows somebody the ability to truly recover, 
And by recovery, I don't mean time in between training sessions or passive recovery modalities. I mean, natural, actual recovery, we miss out on adaptation. And if we miss out on adaptation, we're leaving results on the table every single time. So what's foundational to, to what we do and what we're trying to accomplish, we're, we're missing a massive component of this if we don't connect sleep to recovery and to adaptation. And so, again, I would say it's an even more of a widespread problem than we maybe even might consider. I know there's a lot probably to unpack within that, but. So, all right. So let me ask you this. I mean, we're going to obviously go in several different directions here, but I mean, how does someone know if they have a sleep issue or not? I mean, are there sort of indicators, red flags, warning signs are, are, I think, cause I think some people may be aware, but some people may not be aware. Yeah. A lot of people are, are a lot of people are really poor at self-estimating their sleep and their sleep situation. And a lot of people, because for a variety of reasons, which you don't have to necessarily get into, but people have accepted their situation of lack of energy, mood swings, fatigue, all these different elements. They've accepted these things as normal. They've accepted it as their new baseline for people who have might not been sleeping well for a long period of time and not getting the quality they need they don't necessarily remember or know anything different. That's just, they think that's just the way it is. And a lot of times people don't necessarily see another route or another option. And so because of that, and because of the fact people are really poor at self-estimating their sleep, I think a lot of times the vast majority of clients we work with, people we talk to, wouldn't even perceive themselves as having a sleep issue per se. But I mean, really some some key things to think about, and you can keep these things pretty pretty simple, but the things I look at are a lot of times based around the quality of sleep that someone's getting, but looking at energy levels. So you have consistent energy levels throughout the day. We all get some variations and dips. We have circadian rhythms that might dictate a certain lull in the early to late afternoon. Those things can be normal, but do you have inconsistent energy throughout all other points? Or is it difficult for you to wake up and really get going in the morning? Do you find yourself having a bit of irregular mood swings? Do you find yourself being a little more reactive with the people that you care about? All these different aspects of cognitive function as well that we know are impacted by sleep quality on a day in and day out basis. So the presence of these things might be an indication that you're just not getting as good of quality sleep as you, you might be able to. You know, it was interesting. We had a, a Christia Schwanden on a couple weeks ago, and she wrote a great book on recovery called Good to Go. And when we were talking about sleep with her, one of the things she mentioned was interesting. She said, the people who are generally the most sleep deprived are the least uh, able to, to kind of gauge their sleep. Mm -hmm. And they are the ones that think, oh, I'm good on five hours of sleep because they're so out of it, kind of to your point, that they, they have no idea how bad they are. So when it comes to gauging sleep, now you have wearable sleep trackers. They've become very accessible. They're very popular, but there's a lot of question as to their accuracy. Um, and, and, and so when are they useful and, and when are they not? So it usually surprises, it usually surprises most people that I'm not somebody who is a large advocate for sleep trackers. And you, I don't tend to use them very often in my coaching process. And most of the coaches that go through our program don't end up using sleep trackers very often. And there's a, there's a few different reasons for that. You mentioned the accuracy piece being one, but the even larger problem with sleep trackers is one of the underappreciated aspects of why people struggle with sleep is the behavior and the mindset and the relationship that people have with their sleep and their potential inability to sleep. It's a lot of stress and anxiety that's built up around the process, especially if they've been struggling for any period of time, months, even years. And so very often adding a sleep tracker into the mix can be something that adds to that stress bucket, so to speak. It just adds more stress and anxiety for them. It's just one more element that they're becoming over hyper-focused on. And because of the fact that it's not entirely accurate in every situation, we could talk a bit more about the accuracy, but now I can sometimes have people basing how they feel around something that might not be all that accurate. And one of the biggest things that we do in the coaching process 
is we help people restructure some of the negative thoughts and perceptions that they might have around their sleep. But if people are getting a sleep score or a number or some indicator of their sleep quality, even if it's not all that accurate, they might now be basing how they feel. And I can't change that. I can't change the number, right? If it's more subjective of how they feel, we can work with that. We can restructure that more positively, but people become very focused on the number or set of numbers. A lot of times, and this is not just related to sleep. This is all aspects of having objective data. Sometimes people just don't do well with numbers. Some people just some people, it's great for them. It motivates them. It helps them. It keeps them connected. For some, it takes them in the opposite direction, and they just become so hyper-focused on that that they lose sight of everything else. And so really my general rule of thumb for these sleep trackers is if you yourself or if it's someone, a client that you're working with, is to not use sleep trackers, at least at the onset of, of the process of trying to improve sleep. because again. We don't want to add more stress and anxiety. Now, it's not all bad. They Firstly, they've come a long way and they're going to continue to get better. They're going to continue to become more accurate. They also, even when they are inaccurate, they're most often consistently inaccurate. So what I mean by that is you can still get a baseline that you can use with context where you can still see how certain variables impact that baseline. Food intake, alcohol, timing of when you train, whatever the case may be, you can still get contextual awareness around certain variables. But the, the biggest thing is as long as it's not something that adds too much stress and anxiety. So if you're thinking about this for yourself or you're thinking about this for a client, just do a little bit of a self-assessment of is am I somebody or is this client somebody who does well in the face of more information or is it something that's just going to overwhelm them even more? Yeah, I love that you say that. And we talk about that just in general with wearables in terms of having the right wearable for the right person, if any at all. And then also understanding specifically about the sleep trackers from everything I've seen. And I don't know if you want to confirm this is that even if it's somewhat accurate on your total sleep time, if they're telling you things about your deep sleep and REM sleep and so forth, you're not going to get that from a ring or a wrist strap. Yeah. So, I mean, a few, a few, there's really a few layers to these sleep trackers in terms of their accuracy. So phase one or the first layer is just differentiating. Are you asleep or are you not sleeping? And vast majority of them are good in this, in this realm, because you're, you're essentially just picking up heart rate, you're picking up movement. Most sleep trackers back going back before they've evolved used to just be actigraphy. They were just tracking movement. And so that's been having been done for, for a while. So most are pretty good there. The second layer is differentiating, generally speaking, between non-rapid eye movement sleep and rapid eye movement sleep. The two main categories of, of sleep. Within non-rapid eye movement sleep, you have multiple stages that increase in depth. As you go in increasing depth, there are certain components that we get out of that type of sleep. A lot of them are actually pretty good in this area. And it's actually pretty or rel relatively more easy to differentiate between non-rapid eye movement sleep and rapid eye movement sleep. When we're in rapid eye movement sleep, our brain is a lot more active. We get a lot more variation in our heart rate. So we actually see increases in heart rate variability during rapid eye movement sleep. And so because of those things, as long as they're looking at heart rate or even respiratory rate, you can tend to differentiate a little bit where, as you alluded to, where it, the accuracy really starts to step off is when you're really distinguishing how much time you're spending in the deeper stages of sleep. I'm spending 20% in non-REM stage two. 30% in non-REM stage three or four. Sometimes those get clumped together. Sometimes they're their own individual stages. Doesn't matter as much, at least for the, the context of this, but that's where it really starts to lose its accuracy. And the reason for that is the number one variable that individuals are looking at in a sleep lab or really understanding of sleep quality and sleep disorders is brainwave activity. And without having a lens into that, you're missing out on a big component of what makes up, what makes sleep sleep. So 
even if you're looking at heart rate and respiratory rate and movement and all these different other variables, without being able to look at brainwave activity, there's always going to be something left to be desired. Okay, so let's continue on that theme of talking about brainwave activity. And there's a huge connection with uh, um, brain diseases like Alzheimer's and so forth and mm. sleep. So talk a little bit about the impact of sleep on disease and longevity. For sure. So especially from a neurodegenerative standpoint, I think there's going to be even more understood about this as we move forward. And the connections between sleep and neurodegenerative diseases is actually relatively new in terms of the research and connection that we have. It wasn't that long ago that there was the development of the brain having its own lymphatic system. It's called the glymphatic system, which is essentially the process by which these glial cells in the brain actually shrink to allow for cerebral spinal fluid to bathe through the brain and clear out toxins. You can think of it, the best analogy I heard for this is thinking about New York City, all the buildings just shrinking to allow the street sweepers to come in and just have an easier job of being able to clean up. And this lymphatic system, this brain's lymphatic system, is active during the deeper stages of sleep. And so individuals who are not getting to those deeper stages, or at least not spending the adequate time in those stages of sleep, are missing out on this, this waste management that occurs within the brain. So that's when we're talking about the presence of these different neurotoxins, be it amyloid plaque or any of these that we know there are, I know there's those who are really in that space will say it's not just these, these neural plaques, that there's a lot of other variables that tie into this. And I, I definitely get that, but there is, there is a connection here. And so sleep absolutely plays a role in the prevalence of these diseases their and their development as well, their development over time. And that's just one piece of connectivity. But again, from a neurodegenerative standpoint, sleep is definitely something that I think, again, we're going to even understand more and more as we, we move forward. All right. So, you know, we've sort of discussed um, sleep and, and the importance of it as far as health and longevity, but when it comes to performance and athletes, mm. it's super important as well. And you've consulted with multiple pro teams. Um, what, what do you focus on when it comes to their sleep and their performance? It's a good question. So it's surprisingly, it's a lot of the same variables, albeit in different contexts, but a lot of the same variables I tend to focus on in general population, we tend to focus on in, in a performance setting. Again, albeit in different contexts and some variables being harder to implement, but really so much of this comes down to behavior. And in large part, because this is just the area that doesn't get enough attention, as much attention as it should, but it's the foundation to how and why sleep issues develop and why they stick around for longer periods of time. So a lot of times people, and even in a performance setting, all the en all the energy, all the, the finances, all the time is allocated to towards the technology and the lifestyle hacks, the sleep hygiene, all these improvements. But without looking at what someone's relationship is with sleep or what an athlete's relationship is with sleep, what I mean by their relationship with sleep is how do they feel about sleep and their ability to sleep? What is their perception of sleep? What is their perception of their sleep ability? What are the myths and misconceptions that they might have? What is their confidence in their ability to sleep? What are some of the things that have formed as habits as a result of those things? Because if we don't address those things, you can't lifestyle hack your way out of somebody having a poor mindset around sleep. And I know this is true for other variables as well, exercise or nutrition or anything else, but where sleep is also a bit unique is that, especially in the act of sleep itself, you can't, you can't will yourself to sleep, right? A lot of times athletes are used to using willpower and using a strong mental focus to be able to power through on different elements of I'm not feeling this training session today, but I'm able to power through, or this isn't the nutritional decision I want to make, but mentally I'm able to power through in the act of sleep. There's not a willpower to sleep. In fact, it's actually surrendering that willpower. It's the opposite because if you're lying there trying to sleep and you're trying to motivate yourself to sleep, you're going to pull yourself in the complete opposite direction. And so 
the behavior and mindset is the first starting point and where I find that we have the most amount of area for improvement. And then certainly we can get into, and we do, some of the other areas of optimization from a circadian perspective. And there is an influence that circadian rhythms has on athletics and performance and all these things, but it ultimately starts with the the mindset and the perception and all these behavioral elements. So let's talk more about behaviors and habits because sleep is something that is, has become uh, and sleep habits have become part of the lexicon now that you have people like Andrew Huberman and Matthew Walker and all these people talking about it. And they throw around a lot of the same type of suggestions, whether it's a, avoiding blue light or if it's having the room cool or any of these things. Are there any certain uh, tried and true uh, you know, recommendations that you have? And are there any that you see out there a lot that, that don't really you know, make the cut? Yeah, so in terms of those that don't make the cut, I, I just want to point out one thing just because they get circulated around so much, whether it be in a general population context or a performance context, these sleep hygiene lists. And you mentioned that's a lot of the things that either Huberman or others mention as sleep optimization strategies. And far and away, the vast majority of the time, I don't have a problem with any of the things that are on those lists. And those things can all be helpful. Really, the biggest problem with these is there's no context or individuality to that person. I always use the example, albeit not apples to apples exactly, but if somebody came to us from a performance coaching standpoint or a fitness coaching standpoint, and we just gave them a list of the top 10 exercises and told them to go have at it, have fun, good luck. We would never do that. There's a level of assessment, individuality, understanding of that athlete, where they're at, what they need. And then the program is used to match that, or at least it should be, right? But in sleep, so often there's just the list of things that are given or thrown out there without any context or individuality. So that's really the only problem I have with, say, the world of sleep hygiene and sleep and sleep optimization. But in terms of the some of the big rock behavioral strategies that I I tend to focus on and that I think are a good starting point is the first, and I've already alluded to this a bit, is assessing and looking at your relationship with sleep, taking an honest look of how you feel about sleep. What are some of the thoughts and perceptions you have around your sleep and your sleep ability? Do you find yourself saying some negative things around sleep of, I'm just a poor sleeper. I've always been a poor sleeper. I'm destined to sleep crappy. This is just the way it is for me. I can't function if I don't get this amount of sleep. Any of these things that we tell ourselves that if we're believing these things, your perception is your reality. So even if those things aren't necessarily true all the time, that perception is your reality. And they're always going to dictate a lot of your sleep situation. And so being willing to be a bit open and honest with what you what those things are and how you feel about them, and then challenging those things. I call it putting those thoughts on trial. Can we can we point out some things that that show the contrary to that? And as silly as it might sound, one of the things we do is with thought restructuring is you have to make these new thoughts and perceptions your reality. In the same way that the negative ones formed, we have to form positive ones here as well. And so writing them down, saying them out loud, integrating them into conversation. Sometimes it seems a bit silly, but again, you want these things to be said enough, to be emphasized enough to where they become more a part of your reality and how you feel about your sleep situation. And so that's one of the, the first starting points. Another really valuable strategy that builds off of that a bit is something I call, we call constructive worry sessions. Because whether it's an athlete or whether it's a general population individual, we tend to download a lot of our day and download a lot of our problems, worries, when our head hits the pillow. When that's actually the last time we want to be thinking. Because if we're lying there ruminating, it's going to pull us again in that opposite direction. And so something as simple as carving out a time, even if it's only five minutes to start, to, as the name suggests, constructively deal with your worries, thoughts, to-dos, problems, problems on one side, plans on the other side. There's just something powerful about having these things written down on paper, knowing that they're being dealt with in some capacity that can really be alleviating. And the biggest thing with this with sleep is that it allows you to deflect. So when your head hits the pillow and you start to go down that rabbit hole, 
you're able to deflect of, okay, I'm going to go write this thing down, or this is something that's already down and I'm going to deal with it tomorrow. So that ability to deflect is, is really valuable. And there's a lot of this under the behavioral component, but the last thing I'll share with this is something called stimulus control. And this is essentially the associations that individuals form with sleep and their bedroom, bedtime. And in order to understand stimulus control a bit and how it's effective, I'll just work back to understanding how sleep issues actually develop. I think this is a valuable thing to cover anyway, but outside of medical conditions, medical issues surrounding sleep, the prevalence of sleep disorders, there are really three primary factors that come into play with sleep issues developing. We call them the three Ps. So there are predisposing factors. These are anything that makes an individual more likely to deal with sleep issues versus somebody else. It can be higher levels of anxiety, lower distress tolerance. We can even put age in this category to a certain extent. For those situations, it doesn't mean there's nothing that can be done. Just want to give consideration to those things up front. There are precipitating factors, and these are the things that everybody deals with in some way, shape, or form. Nobody sleeps well 365 days out of the year for years on end, right? We experience change in travel, periods of stress, being sick, all these things that can temporarily disrupt our sleep. Where the behavior comes into play and where a lot of people get stuck is in the next two things that develop as a result of that. The first of which is something called perpetuating factors. These are the thoughts, behaviors, habits that develop as a result of struggling. This is where the acute variables turn chronic, where now someone's fundamental beliefs and confidence in their ability to sleep has changed. That's where a lot of the behavior is focused. And then the last thing that can sometimes form, and actually does form for many, is something called conditioned arousal. And this is a learned association, and in a lot of instances, expectation to be in bed and be awake, where your bedroom, bedtime, physical bed have all become associations for wakefulness as opposed to sleep. One of the ways to think about this, well, a few ways to think about this, and I'm sure you, you both, either of you guys may have experienced this and certainly someone listening, if you're falling asleep on the couch because you're so tired, but then as soon as you get into bed, you're wide awake. Or if you sleep really well when you're on vacation, when you're detached from your usual environment, but as soon as you come back home, those issues come right back. A way to think about this, it's a bit of a silly analogy, but think of conditioned arousal like food poisoning where imagine you went to a restaurant with some friends and you got food poisoning. And for anybody who's gotten food poisoning before, it's it's pretty terrible. And then let's say after a little bit of time, your stupid friends convince you to go back to that restaurant and you got food poisoning again. At this point, even just hearing the name of the restaurant, driving past it, maybe a certain smell, there might be an association of physically feeling ill, even though you're not consuming that food. Similarly, when someone spends a lot of time in bed, not able to sleep, struggling to fall asleep, there's a conditioned response that occurs. And so stimulus control is aimed at combating that. And there's a few tenets to that. The first is only doing things in your physical bed and bedroom, especially around the time of sleep, that are sleep-related. People do far too many things in their physical bed that are not sleep related. People watch TV in bed, they work in bed, they eat in bed, which I always say is gross, but I guess to each their own. But people do far too many things in their physical bed that have nothing to do with sleep. And so the rule of thumb for this is sleep and sex. That's, that's it. And again, you're trying to create a more positive association to where when your head hits the pillow, when you're physically laying in bed, it's for sleep. That's the time for sleep, not the time to do all these other different things. The one area I tend to 
bend a bit on is reading in bed. And for a lot of people, that's something just lower light, low, lower activity. And if a lot of people find it helps them to wind down. So that can be perfectly fine. It's more just these other, these other facets. The next component to stimulus control is well, actually these next two might seem a bit counterintuitive, but only going to bed when you are actually sleepy. So even if it means you're going to get less sleep, let's say you went out with some friends or coworkers and you got back, you're still a bit amped up. You're autonomically amped up. You're not quite physiologically ready for sleep just yet. But if you only think in terms of sleep duration, you might force yourself to try and sleep before you're actually ready. Only going to bed when you are very sleepy and when you are physiologically ready for sleep. As another analogy, we don't go and sit at the dining room table and wait to be hungry. We go and sit and eat when we're hungry, with the exception of obviously probably bodybuilders or people in that in that space, right? So similarly with sleep, only going to bed when you're actually sleepy. And then the last component to stimulus control is when you are unable to fall asleep or stay asleep, as counterintuitive as it might sound, physically getting out of the bed and bedroom because you're trying to not allow these associations to form over time. So the, the rule of thumb here is typically 15 to 20 minutes. If you're unable to fall asleep or if you wake up in the middle of the night, unable to fall back asleep, and it's 15 or 20 minutes to physically get out of the bed and bedroom for 15 to 20 minutes. The caveats to this is this is only if this is happening on a consistent basis. If this just happens as a one-off, you don't need to physically get out of bed. This is if this is happening on a more habitual basis. And especially when in that 15 to 20 minutes, you're ruminating about the fact that you can't fall asleep or can't get back to sleep. So I know there was a lot of things there, but just some of the biggest considerations around those, those sleep behaviors. Hey, everybody, a quick break in the action here. Hope you're enjoying the show and we appreciate you listening. We're working hard to bring you the highest quality content and best guest every single week. So if you could do us a big favor and go and like and subscribe to the show on whatever platform you get your podcasts on, it would be greatly appreciated. Be sure to listen at the end of the show also to find out more information about our courses, as well as a special discount code for all our listeners. Thanks again, and let's get back to the show. Well, the biggest consideration that you, you address there is whether, you know, I let my wife listen to this episode or not, because it's a constant battle with us, because it always seems that with every couple, there's one person that wants the TV on, and then mm. there's someone else who hates having the TV on. And for me, I'm the TV on because it's not that I, I want the stimulus, it's the white noise. And it's something that if I I'm in the darkness, automatically I go into the room and any thoughts and I'm thinking of, of the thousand things that I didn't do today and the thousand I got to do tomorrow. So if yeah, I can just and there's, put on something mindless, it just kind of helps me zone out and, and, and tune out. Yeah. And there's, there's, everything's always a give and take. And there is with certain aspects, like for example, with the, the white noise, the sound component, temperature to a certain extent, there are certain things in research that point to somebody being a bit more right on the temperature side of things. But with sound, for example, because my wife and I are polar opposites as well, where I like to have a fan or some type of background noise in some way, shape or form where she prefers for it to be so silent that you can hear every breath, you can hear a pin drop, but neither is necessarily wrong within that. It's just a matter of preference. But what I will say is if you prefer having some type of background noise, get a white noise machine, something else that's not your TV, because now you're also introducing the blue light and everything else. And when there's words there, you don't know what you're actually hearing and processing and all these other variables. And so I would say fan, white noise, all those things would be much more valuable to have as background noise as opposed to having the TV on. I mean, I would, I'm, bit biased in this, but I would make the case that for most, if not all couples, not even having a TV in your bedroom is something that's a really valuable sleep strategy. And it's not to say that you can't have your routine of, of watching an episode or watching something together, but having it be detached from the physical bedroom itself, because the idea is you're trying to create your bedroom, your physical bed 
as being a haven and place for sleep as much as possible to where, and this is something I had to personally work on, but now it's to the point, I always joke that my life, my wife is a pillow talker. She loves to kind of talk about everything when we're headed to the, our head hits the pillow. We have got young kids. So sometimes we don't get another opportunity and I get that, but I've created it to the point where when my head hits the pillow, I fall asleep pretty quickly. And so I've fallen asleep on her mid sentence multiple times. And, but not that I'm advocating you fall asleep on your wife, but that's the type of association that you want to create between your bed and bedroom. And we're just, we should not say anything at this point right now, move on to the next question. So, um, <laughs> all right. So we've talked about sleep, but what about napping? Are there benefits of napping and can it mitigate uh, some of the damage from uh, lackluster sleep? So much like every single thing in our industry, the answer is always, it depends, right? With that being said, just because you, you actually led really well into it, the, the way you position naps as being a way to offset some of the deficits of sleep is the wrong way to think about napping. And you never want, naps can certainly have a place and they can be helpful, they can be valuable, but never as a sacrifice to nighttime sleep or never as a, okay, because I'm going to nap, I can get less sleep at night. You always would rather prioritize your larger normal sleep window at night and trying to get as much duration quality as you can out of that. My general rule of thumb with napping, much like when we talked about with sleep trackers is for somebody who is struggling with sleep currently, like you're struggling to sleep at night. I tend to discourage from napping. And part of that is if we look at one of the things that actually allows us to sleep, one of the key mechanisms around sleep, it's something called sleep pressure, your sleep pressure system. And the way this works is for every second that we're awake and utilizing energy, this sleep pressure builds up and accumulates in the brain. And we can actually use this to our advantage when we have a nice, healthy, high amount of this it makes it easier for us to fall asleep and get a better quality of sleep. One of the things that happens when we nap, depending on the timing of that nap, the length of that nap, is it doesn't allow that sleep pressure to build back up. Because when you sleep, you're taking that sleep pressure down. So if you nap for an hour and a half, you're taking some of that sleep pressure down and you might not allow enough for it to build up to where at night, there's not as much of that sleep pressure. And again, even for people who are struggling, we actually, there's a whole other strategy called sleep restriction. And that's essentially one of the components of that is actually allowing sleep pressure to build up more, having someone stay up a bit later to where now that sleep pressure is so high and overwhelming that it makes it easier for somebody to fall asleep and they tend to get a more restful sleep. And so that's really the biggest potential downfall to napping is that it should never take away from nighttime sleep. And if you're struggling, fight the nap to allow that sleep pressure to build up at night. With that being said, the other consideration for naps, if it doesn't disrupt your sleep at night, is they should fall into one of two categories. They should either be a cognitive reset of around 20 to 30 minutes, the power nap, if you will, where you're not going into the deeper stages of sleep quite yet. And we know that with this type of nap, you can get some cognitive benefits. You can increase your focus and energy levels a bit, productivity. Or naps should fall in the category of 80 to 90 minutes. And the reason for that is in the 80 to 90 minutes, you're going through roughly all the stages of sleep, reaping all those benefits, and after each sleep stage, there's actually a brief period of awakening. So if you're able to time it to where you're actually waking up from the nap and it's a bit easier for you to wake up, I'm sure you've experienced where you maybe took a 40 to 60 minute nap or somewhere in the middle and you just wake up and you feel like shit. And the reason for that is in large part because you're likely waking yourself up from a deeper stage of sleep. And it just that's just never going to feel good. You have this lingering sleep inertia. And so trying to think about your naps on being one or either end of the spectrum there, but never really somewhere in the, in the middle. So 
coming from the fitness and rehab world, talk about the impact of movement and fitness and exercise and, and how it impacts sleep. For sure. So we, we know that from a movement exercise standpoint, that moderate level of activity has a direct correlation to increases in sleep quality. And one of the, well, the, the reason why this happens is, is multifaceted. The first of which is I mentioned that sleep pressure. When you are in, inducing a certain level of activity, you're increasing the amount and rate of that sleep pressure buildup. So it actually allows more sleep pressure to build up. The other is when there is a certain intensity of exercise and movement that is accomplished, you're getting an immune system response. You are triggering the immune system, much like if you think about when you're sick, your immune system is triggered and it's responding. And what do you want to do when you're sick? You crave to sleep. So when your immune system is triggered as a response to certain activity or intensity of activity, you're getting an immune system response that can actually help you to sleep and to get a better quality of sleep. Really the biggest caveat or the biggest consideration with exercise and movement is the timing piece where if someone is exercising a bit too late, it can have an adverse effect or potential adverse effect on sleep and sleep quality to where there is an increase in body temperature that works in the opposite direction. There is a cortisol response, whatever the case may be. This is one of those that's always challenging because I get plenty of, like you, we said at the beginning, a lot of coaches, their schedule is all over the map and sometimes late clients and even the clients we work with, that might be their schedule where the only window that they have to work out is at say seven, eight, nine o'clock at night. So I always get, well, do we not exercise or not be active? And this is one of those give and takes where the all the other benefits that come as a result of exercising and movement are too valuable to, to miss out on. So it's one of those you're going to have to, it's not ideal, but you're going to have to try and work within it as best as you can, where maybe you're staying up a bit later than you would typically think to allow your body to come back down from, from that. You're doing some things that help pull the, the body temperature in the opposite direction. There are things that you can do, but knowing that it's not ideal in the same way we look at shift work is not something that's ideal, but you try to mitigate the situation as best as possible. Okay. So talking about health and fitness and rehab professionals, that's, uh, as we mentioned earlier, something that you've also developed a, a lot of your current work with helping educate those and putting together conferences and educational platforms for them. Um, and, and that's kind of actually how we stumbled upon your work was, was this conference that you recently put together virtually that had a lot of the guests that we've already had on the show. Um, so that drew our attention. So, uh, tell us a little bit about what you're doing in our world, uh, to kind of, to, to steal the phrase of your conference to kind of raise the bar in our industry. For sure. For sure. So yeah, there's really two, two facets of what I focus on in the industry outside of, of sleep currently. The first of which is hosting regular industry events. So I host a series of virtual events. The event brand is called Impact Events. I started doing these virtual summits actually right at the, the start of the pandemic after all my workshops got canceled or rescheduled and pivoted, decided to do a virtual event that just basically took on a life of its own. We had, for that first year, we had 6,500 registered in 40 countries for a virtual event. So I obviously continued and uh, continue to host these these virtual events and these large scale virtual events. I also host an in-person event with a business partner and friend of mine, Derek Mendoza. That's the Raise the Bar conference. This this upcoming February will be our third year of hosting that event. It's in Dallas, Texas. And then there's some synergy for this next area within events, but one of the things that I have been really passionate about and that I'm excited to share with more in the industry are speaking and presenting skills. I have been fortunate to now at this point, both inside and outside of the industry present at nearly a hundred events, both in-person, virtual, and again, 
inside of our industry and outside of, and a lot of those were sleep related at the start as a foot in the door, but I've just seen all the things that speaking, not only the opportunities of speaking and what they've done for my business and brand, but the skills of speaking and communication and presenting that have just had to carry over to everything else that I do. And I do think there's just so much more potential within our industry. And, and ultimately, it's not even so much just the opportunity to present on stages, albeit that can be incredible for you and for your brand, but it's how you essentially communicate what it is that you do, how you convey your messages. We tend to, especially in our industry, we focus so heavily on the content itself. I call it using a content shield where we just lean so much on the content itself that sometimes we forget how that message might actually land with someone else in front of us. There's, I always say there's, there's what you know, then the next layer is what you can actually communicate but then taking that a step further is there's what actually lands with someone else. There's what actually motivates them and gets them to take action. And that's what we're ultimately in the business of doing. And so how you use your voice, how you use your body language, how you tell stories, how you weave all these things together has a direct correlation to how your messages actually land with someone else. Well, as, as two guys here sitting here who've been doing fitness education for, you know, myself almost 20 years and Mike about 15, uh, that certainly resonates. And, and we're in a, a somewhat of a weird place. And I want to get your feedback on it is yeah. as magical as the whole virtual thing is that allows us to reach out. And I've done, you know, presentations in Turkey and, you know, all in Asia and so forth without having to get on a plane. There's also something magical to being in the room of being able to connect and make eye contact and have conversations and find out people's stories. And then even for the participants in the room to where you can create connections that can lead to things that you don't even realize that can, uh, you know, matriculate somewhere down the road that gets lost when you're <laughs> sitting behind your laptop. So talk about this current state of where we are and the blend of virtual versus live and where we're missing some things, but also some of the things we're gaining from it. Yeah, no, and it's a great question. And it's one that because I'm a bit in both worlds, I get asked about a lot because I still speak at a lot of in-person events. Now I'm hosting my own in-person workshops, but yet I continue to do these virtual events. So I guess I'm contributing to, to both sides of this. But I mean, really the way the way I look at this is if you're somebody in the industry and you're thinking about how you structure your education and you structure your relationship building is you don't have to choose one or the other. I think you leverage the benefits of each, right? And if, sometimes it's, again, a lot of the questions or angles that I get asked of, you know, which which route should I go or which route should I focus on more? And it's, you know, silly analogy, but you, it's like choosing shirt or pants, right? You can, you can and you should choose both. Both of those, are, both of these things are readily available for you. And so I think virtual events give you more of the wide exposure to learn from people that you wouldn't have gotten the opportunity to otherwise. And I think a lot of your in-person focus should be on the relationship building. Not to say that you can't go and choose things to learn in person, but I think so much of the industry is knowledge seeking. And that's sometimes the, the pitfall of where these virtual events come into play of okay, I can get all my education, all my CEUs, I can get this all online. But I think the, the general way to think about this is get a lot of your education and content that you're seeking virtually and use the in-person opportunities as the relationship building and the networking. I, I mean, I, I'll still go to events. I went to a good buddy of mine event in Edmonton a few months ago. It was the first event I was at that I wasn't speaking at in, in a few years. And it was just so great to be there. And of course, there was I'm sure there were some great talks and things going on, but that wasn't the focus. It was just there's being in the room and then there's being in the room. And I would say for anything that you do in person, especially now, to just really focus on being in the room. Who's in the room? What type of human connections can you develop with the people in the room? Don't just sit there and take a, a copious amount of notes and then go into the corner of the room and just go up to the speakers and ask for a picture and then disappear. Just focus on developing human connections while you're there. And, and that's where you're going to get the, the most value out of it. 
Awesome. Well, we're, we've covered a lot of ground here. So let's talk about where you're going next. Talk about, you know, you mentioned the, the raise the bar coming up. What else do you have going on in 2024 and beyond? Yeah. So raise the bar will be in February in, in Dallas, February 23rd and 24th. We, we still have some seats left for, for the conference with raise the bar. The, the focus is it's an event that is geared towards what we felt were some of the missing links in the industry, the things that don't get as well represented in other industry events. So it is something that's a bit different, but it's something I think pushes you outside of your comfort zone and allows you to develop in other areas of what you do beyond just the, the typical training X's and O's that we tend to gravitate towards. The other big focus for me in 24, 2024 and moving forward that I've already started a bit with is the development of these speaking skills. So again, public speaking, presenting skills that can ultimately have a carryover as well into your coaching, but we're doing this through two different mediums. So we do, we're doing an impact speaker Academy, which is a six month virtual mentorship where we're starting in mid January. We'll have biweekly teachings, guest experts, lots of opportunity for reps and practice and feedback that we'll have built right in. We're going to have some speaker and career fairs built in virtually where you get the opportunity to meet some decision makers to network relationship build. And then the other piece is we're doing a series of two-day live in-person workshops as well. We just did one in Toronto a couple of weeks ago. We've got one coming up in Seattle in early February. And these are just two days of immersive, interactive practice around how you use your voice and your body language, how you link and tell stories, and how you connect with other people as well. Awesome stuff. And as uh, Mike, I'm sure tell you, we, we've done a, a ton of public speaking education, and it is very eye opening every time we do it, and realize just the uh, absolute art form that there is to uh, being able to communicate in, in, in to other people in front of a room, and how much every time we do it, we figure out a way that we need to do, uh, do it better the next time. And so uh, it's something I highly encourage anybody to, to get uh, fully uh, immersed in because it is something, as you said, that transcends just, hey, I'm going to go speak at this conference. It's going to be what you do. It's essentially what we're doing as a presentation every session we do. Um, and so I, I, I would highly, highly recommend that. So Mike, any final thoughts before we wrap up here? No, this was a lot of information and uh, really, really good stuff. So uh, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate uh, really appreciate you having uh, having you as the guest today. Absolutely. Thank you guys for, for having me on. I appreciate it. It was a great, great chat. Awesome. And we want to thank you for listening. And this has been the Principles of Performance podcast. Thank you for listening to the Principles of Performance podcast. If you've enjoyed our content, please like and share on your social media outlets as well as subscribe and give us a review on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your preferred platform is to listen to. For more information on the Principles of Program Design courses and workshops, visit us at www.principlesofprogramdesign.com and follow us on all of the social media channels where we post new content every day. To save 10% on any PPD courses, enter the discount code PRINCIPLESPODCAST10 at checkout. If you have any questions we can answer or suggestions for the show, you can email us at info at principlesofprogramdesign.com or message us on social media. Thank you again for your support.